Now, let's turn to God's word and to the book of Romans and to chapter 1 and to <clears throat> verse 18. Now, these are very, very, very well-known verses. And from verse 18 on in to the end of the chapter, many people consider these verses to be the verses that specifically describe our society today. But I think sometimes there's a danger that what we do with the Bible is we chop it up into chunks and we, we <clears throat> have particular passages and we, need, we, we always need to see things in context. And what's interesting about this one is that Paul has just gone on from talking about not being ashamed of the gospel and then he starts talking about the wrath of God and God revealing himself in creation. And it, there doesn't appear to be an immediate connect, and yet there is a very di- direct connect, and I hope as we go through this, you'll see this. But I also want to say this, that for most of us, and that includes those of you who are Christians, and it certainly includes virtually everyone who grows up in this culture and society, there is a fundamental error in our thinking which this passage addresses. And let me say what that error is. And it's the one that your workmates will have. It's the one that your family will have. It may even be one that you have. And it goes like this. We think that we would believe in God if God showed himself or provided evidence. We think that we are reasonable people. And if only God showed himself, then of course we believe in him. And the reason people don't believe is because there isn't evidence or they haven't seen the evidence. Now, one of the things that, um, and I'm sure Andy Bannister will forgive me for referring to him and to Solas, but one of the things that Andy is very, very good at is providing evidence for God. But in some ways, sometimes what we uh, need to do is enable people to see the evidence that they already have. Another big problem that I think many people have is this, and many Christians have, and it's a question that you'll get from very young age, from uh, children and so on, is if people don't have the Bible, how can they know about God? And then why would God judge people for something they don't know? So, for example, if you've never heard of Jesus, then why would God judge you on the day of judgment, as the Bible would indicate, for not believing in Jesus if you've never heard of him? Surely that's unfair. And the answer is, of course it's unfair. And that's not what the Bible teaches. And here's the fascinating thing. God won't judge you as a non-Christian because you don't believe in Jesus if you've never heard of Jesus. What God judges you for is what you already know and what you do with what you already know. And it's a whole lot more than you think. Now Paul, when he's planning to go to Rome. He's writing to the Romans. It's a city of a million people, the vast majority of whom have not heard about Jesus, don't want to hear about Jesus. And he's writing to a church uh, where there may be some division and there are always, as in all churches, difficulties. And the question is, how do you communicate the good news to people who don't have any idea? Or let me put it another way, how do you communicate the good news to people in your university class? How do you communicate the good news to people in your work? How do you communicate the good news to your families? Especially when they're growing up in a culture 
which is largely biblically illiterate, doesn't know much of the Bible, and therefore much of what is termed traditional evangelism is pointless. Telling people to believe in Jesus if they've never heard of Jesus is just daft. And these verses begin to answer that. Now, over uh, as we continue to go through Romans, you'll see <clears throat> that I think this gives the most comprehensive answer of all, and it's suitable for Christians and non-Christians. So here is Paul's answer. First of all, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Now, there are so many questions, even in those verses. Number one, we've just gone from hearing about the gospel, the good news of God, and Paul goes bang in with the wrath of God. Why would God be angry, and why do we struggle with that idea? Well, we struggle with the idea of the anger of God because of our experience of anger, which is as a human emotion. We think it's unworthy of God because we think anger is wrong. Let me reverse this a little bit by asking, do you think the idea of the love of God is wrong because it's a human emotion? No, of course not. So why would the wrath of God, wrath is not the opposite of love, but why, why would the wrath of God be wrong because it's perceived as a human emotion? What the Bible teaches about the anger of God is that it's not an uncontrollable emotion. It's not a desire for revenge. It's not irrational. It's not temper. The wrath of God, if you understand it rightly, is a steadfast and absolute opposition to all that is evil. In other words, are you going to blame God for being angry that... Today, today, there are children in this city who are being abused by those who are supposed to be caring for them. Are you going to blame God that in a world in which he has provided enormous provision, there are people who will die of hunger and die of thirst? Are you going to blame God being angry that today somewhere probably many places, there are those who are going to plant bombs and kill children and women and innocent bystanders. And we could list and list and list. And I tell you this, if you believe in a God who is not hostile to that and is not angry about that and is not opposed to that, the God you believe in is not worth believing in. Of course he's going to be angry at what's You get angry at stuff that's wrong, and our anger is sinful. Now, it, I mean, this is taught over and over in the Bible. Um, Romans 2 verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Ephesians 5 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And you'll notice what's said there. It's the godlessness and wickedness of people. And this is where actually knowing Greek does help. Because the two Greek words are very specific. 
The first, godlessness, and it's, that's a pretty good translation, it's our sin which is against God. And the second, adikia, is the idea of against human beings. And what he says this, Paul is saying God's wrath is being revealed against all the godlessness, the, the people who deny God, and then because of that, what happens to humanity is we turn against one another. We attempt to get rid of God, which is impossible, but then we live as though we have got rid of God. And notice what's said here. It's a, it's a, it's a decision that's made. This is not people, the, the people who say, well, I would believe in God if God showed me the evidence I'm a reasonable person. Paul's argument is God has shown you the evidence and what you are doing with it is you are suppressing that evidence and you are squashing that evidence and you have decided not to believe. People decide to live for themselves and then deliberately stifle any truth which would challenge that. Now I see this a lot in social media and this is a, this is a kind of extreme example of it. What happens in social media or in politics or, uh, you know, almost anything? Well, actually, let's take let's get away from politics. Let's decide that you like Justin Bieber. And on social media, you just, you just, I love Justin Bieber and Justin Bieber's got a Christian girlfriend and Justin Bieber this. So everything that you get about Justin Bieber that's positive, you like. But then you hear perhaps he's been drunk or been arrested or, um, I mean, who would think this, that his music's rubbish? People start saying that. And you, what you do is you unfriend the people who say that. You block it. You, you immediately say, uh, some of you are looking a bit blank and saying, who's Justin Bieber? Don't worry. Um, <laughs> think Frank Sinatra or something. I don't know. Uh, and, you, you know, you say, I'm, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to listen to that. You see it in politics with political opinions. You see it in so many different ways. And what people do is they, they put aside anything that would challenge the opinion they already have. And that's what Paul says is happening here. He's saying God has presented us with the truth, but we suppress it. Now, we'll go on to see what that actually means. But notice in this verse that it's not that the wrath of God will be revealed on the day of judgment, what Paul says is it is being revealed. And this is very important to understand what's going on in the world today and to understand history. The history of the world is the judgment of the world. Now, how that happens, it's not usually in thunder and lightning. If somebody goes out right now and shakes their fist at heaven and says, go on, if you're there, strike me with lightning. Well, there's a grave in England where somebody apparently did that, and it's recorded on the grave. But that doesn't normally happen. This is how God judges us, and this is really important, how God is judging us just now. It is very simply this. In the words of Fleetwood Mac, you can go your own way. Fine. The worst thing that God could ever do is not rebuke you, not challenge you, not chastise you. The worst thing that God could ever do to you is to say, fine go your own way. And that, may God have mercy on us, is what's happening in our culture. We choose to live without God and the consequences of that we reap. 
I've just been reading um, an amazing book, uh, Simon Seabag Montefiore, on the Romanovs, the Russian uh, czarist family who, in effect, governed Russia for about 400 years. Amazing in this way, it is so depressing. They were so debauched. They were obsessed with themselves, sexual immorality, and so on. And the thing is, this royal family at whims, I mean, they were, they were related to the, the Kaiser in, in Germany at the latter end, and they were related to uh, our royal family. In fact, Prince Philip was connected with them as well, and the, through the Greek royal family, and so on. All these royal families were intermingled. And, you know, on the basis of personality, they split and they fought one another. And so millions and millions of Russians were killed, and you ended up with the 1970 revolution and Stalin and 30 million Russians being killed because of people's sinfulness and stupidity. God judged Russia, and God judged Europe. God judged Germany. You look at the history of Germany, and God judged Britain because we said... We can do without God now. We can do fine. And so by the time we got to the 20th century, it became the worst century in the history of the world for war. And those wars were waged by nations and leaders who thought that they could do without God, except when they called on weak and supine religious leaders to bless their wars. The wrath of God against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. When you look at what's going on in the world today, I would simply say one way of understanding it, and I think it's a good way of understanding it, is saying this is God's wrath not in directly punishing us, but in letting us have what we ourselves want. We'll go on to verses 19 to 21. Uh, Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Because, uh, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now again, I'll just repeat this. God does not judge people for what they do not know and what they have not heard. He judges us on the basis of what we do know. So what do we know? And you'd be surprised at this. God is invisible, therefore we cannot see him. But... The creation is a visible disclosure of the invisible God. Artists reveal themselves in what they draw. We sang in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The whole earth is full of his glory. Yesterday was a beautiful day. Today seems to be quite a beautiful day as well. Um, This for me was an enormous problem when I was trying to be an atheist at 14, 15 years old. Because I would walk in the highlands or I'd go along the cliffs at Nig where uh, we lived up in Easter Ross. And it was so beautiful and so stunning. I could not believe that it was an accident. I saw the glory of God in the heavens. Calvin says this, God is himself invisible. But as his majesty shines forth in his works and in his creatures everywhere... Men ought in these to acknowledge him, for they clearly set forth their maker. And for this reason, the apostle in his epistle to the Hebrews says that this world is a mirror or the representation of invisible things. 
This world is a mirror of the glory of God. So if you had the opportunity yesterday to be out walking up in the hills, or if you're an old man like me coming out of hospital, Crombie Park, one circuit, that's enough. Um, Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. For me, if I'm offering an apologetic for God, I'll take you to Wormit and we'll do the walk along the coast to uh, Balmerino Abbey, and it makes even Dundee look stunningly beautiful as you look across the River Tay. Right? Now, it's a mirror, and it's a mirror of who God is. You can't see God. God's not. I mean, this ridiculous picture that people have of God being an old man up in the sky sitting on a cloud or zapping people or, or you know, making people or whatever, that's not. God is invisible. But we see his glory through what he has made. Think of this. Paul, um, in Acts 14, when uh, the people in this village in Greece tried to worship him, He said, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he's not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. When people say, where's the evidence for God? I say, come on to the hills. When people say, where's the evidence for God? I'll say, come on out. Come, let's go out to the miller's farm. And I'll show you the crops and the cows and everything else. When people say, where's the evidence for God? I'll take them to Tesco's. You say, well, come on. No, not come on. It, it, is, it is absolutely incredible. It's wonderful. And notice what he says here. He uses two words, both of them quite unusual. His eternal power and divine nature. His eternal power just simply means this. Um, I like this phrase. I don't know who, where I picked it up from, but his always-ness. In other words, everything in this world is not eternal. It doesn't last forever. But God's eternity is shown in what he has made, the way that he has made it and how it reflects who he is. It's why we have all these seasons. It's all the processes and everything that is wonderful about that. And then his divine nature. This is a wonderful thing. In nature we see something of nature's God. We can learn about God through what he has made. Now, this is what theologians call natural revelation, which all of us have, and all of us are judged by, because all of us are made in the image of God. Some people also call it general revelation because it's made to everybody. It's natural, it's always there, it was from the creation of the world. There isn't a single place in the world (coughs) excuse me, where human beings do not have this. Now, let me just take one sidetrack, just for a couple of minutes, an objection that some people may have. The objection is this. Sure, that's fine when you don't know how things work. Paul didn't know how things worked. People didn't know how things worked until Darwin. And now we know how things work. So um, people believed in God when they were ignorant, but now we have physics and biology and chemistry. So, there is no need of God as an explanation. Forgive me saying this. That is such an ignorant argument. Such an ignorant argument. That is like somebody closing their eyes and seeking to assess the Mona Lisa. Let me explain why. God is not the explanation for the creation. God is the creator, the artist. 
going back to the Mona Lisa. If I look at the Mona Lisa, imagine you go to see the Mona Lisa in the, in the Louvre in Paris, and you're there, and you, may, you maybe got a private showing. There's not hundreds of people around. You've got a private showing, and there's you and a couple of friends. And you're just looking, at it and you're just going, that is some painting. Wow. And one of your friends is a wee bit of a geek. And he says, you know, the properties of the paint on that painting, let me tell you about it. Let me tell you how it's composed. Let me tell you how the formulas and all the rest of it. Okay, fair enough. And your other friend's another geek, except he's a better one because he's a historian. And he says, you know, I can tell from the dress on that. I can tell you about where she came from. I can tell you. There's so much I can tell you. And so they can explain the composition of the painting and they can explain the history of the painting. But if both those people then turned around and said because they could explain the composition or because they they could explain the history, they then said, well, we don't believe that Leonardo da Vinci was the artist. You don't need an artist. We can explain how it happened. When someone, when we say that God is the creator, what we're not saying is this. When one of them, as occasionally happens in this church, a baby is born. And we say, isn't it wonderful that God has given this baby? And someone says, don't be silly. This is how it happened. And they go into all the gory details of how the child is conceived and how the child is formed and how the child is born. You say, oh, wait a minute. How does that mean that God didn't create? God uses processes. That's the whole point when you read Genesis, the song that, uh, that Crawford introduces to us, a children's song, a very simple one. The Bible doesn't teach that God says, okay, you, you're born. You, you're dead. Uh, you, you get food. You, you starve. That's not how it works. It says that God is in the whole of creation. And when we give thanks, you know, you, you sit down and um, at lunchtime, you have a piece of bread. Just think about that bread and you give thanks for that bread. You should be as thankful for that bread coming as it has done from the hands of the farmer and the baker and the shopkeeper and the delivery person as if you were sitting there and you had no food and you prayed and the Lord sent in a raven with a roll and dropped it on your plate. Because both are God's provision. So knowing how things work does not take away from the fact that it's God who makes them work. And I think probably the greatest verse in all of this is just in Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. I think it's wonderful that we have biology and chemistry and um, physics and so on, and Christians of all people should be willing to study and find out because all that we're doing is we're looking at the hands of the creator in his creation. That gives us a great basis for science. But when you start saying, well, science is the explanation of everything, no, it's not. And it doesn't even make, it doesn't even make logical sense to say that. I like John Stott's analogy here, and I've got so many illustrations of it, I'll just use the one. Uh, Stott cites a consultant surgeon who wrote him the following letter, or at least part of it. I am filled with the same awe and humility when I contemplate something of what goes on in a single cell as when I contemplate the sky on a clear night. The coordination of the complex activities of the cell in a common purpose hits the scientific part of me as the best evidence 
for an ultimate purpose. One of the good things about being in hospital is this, is it disillusions you about the omnipotence and uh, omniscience of doctors. Especially when you see, I mean, one doctor on their own, they come and they confidently assert something. And you go, oh, well, that's that. Well, they know they're a doctor. You see five in a row and they all tell you different things. You begin to realize, wait a minute, maybe they don't know. And, you know, you realize that. And those of you who are medics, you realize the best thing about being a medic is one of, you just don't know so many things. You learn so much. But the more you learn, the more you re- realize you don't know. That's not arguing, by the way, for a God of the gaps or a God of ignorance, but it's just saying God has made us incredibly, we're incredibly complex, uh, incredibly wonderful beings. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's what Paul is saying here. Just one brief thing. Um, It's not also in the creation in terms of nature, but it's also in what he enables us as his creation, human beings, to do. So I would argue that things like um, Bach, the Pete-in, um, uh, you know, really good music, really good food. That, that we're, these are all evidences for God. In fact, the evidences for God are all around us. They are, they are whispering to us. They are shouting to us. and We're refusing. And here's why. Natural revelation is not enough. Because this mirror that God has made, two things about it. First of all, it's been smudged by the devil. Because the whole of creation has been tainted. And secondly, we ourselves can't see. Because our sight, our spiritual sight, our understanding has been tainted. It's not so much that we don't know, it's that we don't want to know. We don't like to know. So see, for example, verse 25, which will come on. They exchanged the truth of God, about God for a lie. They, they, they changed Or verse 28, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They basically just give it up. And this is what happens. See what he says here. Because we do that, we do not glorify him as God. We don't praise him. I think today, let's just make it a very simple thing. If any of you sit down for your meal after this service... And do not give thanks to God for it. You are not remembering who gave it to you. It's just so rude. I mean, if you came up to our house and Annabel cooked you a wonderful meal, as she always does, and you didn't say thanks, it's not just that that's not polite. It's just a wrong attitude. Well, God has given us so much, and yet we don't glorify him as God. There's a lack of praise. We don't give him thanks. There's a lack of thankfulness. We become proud and vain. And I do think that describes our culture. Let's just go on to the last thing. I mean, there is so much more in there. But although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. And birds and animals and reptiles. From the beginning of the world, humanity rebelled against God. And that attitude continues today. We stifle the truth. Psalm 106 verse 20. They exchange their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. See, the argument for God is not an argument for religion. 
In fact, what Paul is saying here is that religion often takes us away from God. Because the vast majority of religion in this world is human beings suppressing the truth and making up their own God. Religion, people prefer a religion of their own making rather than the divine revelation. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. I have been in a home of a very intelligent person, postdoc, in Dundee, one room, one bedroom, unbelievably, I was shown the room, it was dedicated to the elephant God and offerings and everything made there. It did chill me. But I'm not just talking about all different types of what people would call religion. I don't think Paul is either. I think he's talking about the idols that we have in this world. Wealth and fame and power. We exchange our understanding of God for that. I think the simple question here is, what do you actually put in the place of God? On the one hand, says Paul, there is the glory of the immortal God or the incorruptible God. The God who doesn't rust, the God who cannot be stolen, the God who doesn't change. There's the glory of that God and there's what you have that you think about, that you work for, that you worship. And it's pathetic in comparison. But we have become fools. There is spiritual blindness. Professing ourselves to be wise, we become fools. I love Luther's comment when he says the sin of omitting that which is good leads to the sin of committing that which is evil. There is no possibility that our culture will reject God without descending into evil. So, what's the solution in all of this? Verse, if we go back to verse 18, the wrath of God. I'm afraid the NIV is wrong here. And most translations don't do this. Uh, do this rather They miss out the word for or but. Because that's the connection. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. And he goes on, for the wrath of God is being revealed. And what he's saying is this. God's revelation is enough to arouse our curiosity, to reveal his eternal power and divine nature and cause us to search for him, which is why there has never been a human society which does not in some form or other worship. But... Well, let me add to that as well. It's enough for us to be judged on what we know. We'll stand before God on the day of judgment. and He'll say, what did you do with what I revealed to you? But our willful blindness means it's not enough to save us from ourselves. In other words, natural religion, worshiping nature or just contemplating nature or finding within ourselves, it's not enough. It's never enough. So what's the solution? Well... It's not more proofs for God, because God keeps giving us proofs. And I, again, I think that what, um, what I do, what Andy does, what others do in terms of when we debate and discuss with atheists is we're removing some of their defeater beliefs, the ones that say they won't even think about God, showing the irrationality of it and so on. But at the end of the day, it's all a waste of time if we don't point them to Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. God's wrath is being revealed. God's wrath will be revealed. Who is the only one who can rescue us? 
It's not a politician. It's not a religious teacher. It's not a philosophy. It is Jesus, his son. God has revealed himself in his creation. We are his image, but we cannot attain to communion and the real knowledge of God because that image is tainted. We recognize natural revelation. We recognize that human beings are made in the image of God. But how can we bridge the gap between my sinful heart, my blindness, and God's glory and knowing God? How do we glorify God? How do we really know God? Colossians 2.9 is, I think, the parallel verse for this passage. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. God's divine power and eternal nature have been seen in creation. But it's not enough. It's in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhood lives in bodily form. We need to make that our aim, to know Christ. See, the creation will point you to Christ. But when you know Christ, I'm sorry, this is a cliche, but it's true. The grass is greener. It's just, to, to walk in the, let's say, just to go and walk up in the hills and to see the beauty is stunning. But then to know Christ as the creator of that and to know Christ as the preserver of it and to know, to know the artist makes you appreciate the art all the more. Hebrews 1, speaking of a mirror. Can we put it on? Sorry, can you move on, Louise? Sorry. Um, I think this to me is if, if nature is God's mirror and it's been smudged, This is the ultimate. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, here is the answer to a question that I was asked by somebody fairly recently. David, why should I come to church on Sunday when I can go up into the hills and see the glory and beauty of God in the hills? And my answer to that is you can go up into the hills anytime, but the reason that you come to church on Sunday is so that you can see the glory and beauty of Christ. And then the next time you walk in the hills, you will appreciate it all the more. And that's what we long for. That's what we need There's the creation. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. There's the revelation. There's the glory of God. There's his providence sustaining all things. There's the cleansing forgiveness for sins. There's the exaltation and the promise of something better, the promise of heaven. You see, the glorious creation is not God. It points to God. But Jesus is God. Now, I believe with all my heart that this creation will be renewed because it's groaning, says Paul. We'll see that later on in Romans. It's groaning, waiting for the redemption of God's children. I believe it will be renewed. But that ultimate renewal is for, is for us, if you like, as we are renewed in Christ. So you see, that's, that's it. Where is God? Show me the evidence for God. It's all around you, but you are just refusing to see. You are dead and you are blind in your sins and your trespasses. And I can't reason you out of it. But I'm going to tell you about Jesus. 
And I'm going to pray that the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ would shine in your hearts so that like John Newton, the slave trader, you would be able to sing and to say, I once was blind, but now I see. Just one more personal anecdote. You know, the saddest thing for me about being in hospital was not being ill or not being in pain or all the rest of it. The saddest thing was just simply this. In the bay that I shared with, the other patients around, different people from different backgrounds, good people in lots of ways, and yet without Christ and without hope. Hopeless. Utterly hopeless. One well-off educated One as poor as could be. Didn't matter. In hospital, they were equal. And both hopeless without Christ. If you are a Christian, rejoice that you've got that. Rejoice at it. And aim to know Christ so much better. And if you're not a Christian, I plead with you to come to know him whom to know is eternal life. And then instead of having this ridiculous idea that you become a Christian and everything becomes so much worse. Don't you understand that if you become a Christian, everything comes alive? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We see its fulfillment all around us just now. As your wrath in leaving us to our own devices results in a humanity that destroys itself and destroys your creation. Lord, have mercy on us. And thank you that you have. Thank you that although our foolish hearts were darkened, although we've turned away from your glory, yet you sent your Son, you send your Holy Spirit, and you show us your glory. Do so now and enable us all to follow you in your name. Amen. We'll finish by singing, um, There is a Hope. And indeed there is. We'll stand to sing and please remain standing for the benediction.